cool love story more than long family <laughs> that luck love a good story you see even eddie tell it over and over so till he write it in a books he write about jamaica as if he's true authority here they grow up with the best of everything from the plantations in jamaica bring in for this family they get what they have from what they take from us take from our parents take everything for themselves they only enjoy jamaica because they force us to please them here all we know is that these people hate everything about jamaica except the money they get from what the slave work they hate the sun they hate the bush they hate we black people even though it is they bring us here so much of them turn absentee because they can't face what they create out here they only love the sugar and molasses what half-dead negro make europeans going crazy for caribbean products these times we know because me accompany eddie on some of his business trips 200 years after columbus and all of europe become addicted to our crops things from this jamaica i'm talking coffee cocoa rum sugar tobacco if you keep plantations in jamaica in these early days then you have status back in england and people like to come to your house for luncheon because you have all the new foods from the indies Hello and welcome, welcome to the Earth Sea Love Podcast. This podcast is for and about women of colour and our relationship with nature. Hosted by me, Cherie Mack. The Earth Sea Love Podcast is committed to exploring the experiences of women of colour with Mother Nature. We want to provide spaces where the hidden voices in the environmental and conservation conversations can explore their relationship with the natural world. Inspired by our time spent outdoors, we amplify the voices of women of colour, our stories, our conversations, interviews, photography, writing and artwork. We'll be exploring our legacies, histories and memories which have had an influence and effect upon how we perceive ourselves within the natural world and within the environmental and climate justice movements. Welcome the Earth Sea Love Podcast. The Earth Sea Love Podcast. 
has been made possible by the funding from National Lottery Heritage Fund. Thank you. Hi, and welcome back to the Earth Sea Love podcast. The extract that you heard at the beginning of this episode was taken from Zakia's Mackenzie's Testimonies on the History of Jamaica, Volume 1. And Zakia is our guest on this episode. And it's with great joy that I bring you this episode. I had a really good conversation with Zakia. Yeah, PhDs, white establishment, racism, and getting our black and brown bodies out into nature. It was such a pleasure to to chat and have a intimate and honest conversation with Zakia because um, conversations like this are few and far between because everybody likes to be pretty pretty nice nice and it was nice to just be honest and open and talk about the reality and how you can see the contrast between being in a white predominant society say in England to being in a black predominant society like Jamaica where um, Zakia was brought up. Within the episode we mentioned the book by Edward Long and that's the Eddie that you hear mentioned who writes books about Jamaica and the plantations and the products in the testimonies on the history of Jamaica volume one and that is also the book that we mentioned in the episode which had just come out in April and you can get it through rough trade books but don't worry all the details are in the show notes and let's just get into this episode. I just love listening to Zakia's voice because um, it just so reminds me of my father's voice who was from Trinidad and Tobago and there's such a, a sing-song quality, rhythmical musicality to voices from the Caribbean that we don't hear enough of. So sit back and relax and welcome to the next episode from the Earthsea Love Podcast. Thanks for being here. Bye for now. Thank you for taking the time to sit down with me and to be part of the Earthsea Love Podcast. Thank you so very much. You know, as I usually start off is I ask how you are, how are you? Have you been keeping care of yourself? Yeah, because we're coming out of our third lockdown um, mm-hmm. in the UK. So the question is, Is are you okay? And where are you calling in from? Are you close to nature at this point? Well, thank you. First, thank you for having me. And thank you very much for asking, even. Um, you know, that's that's very nice. I am, I'm well, you know, I, I, I said to everyone, I hope you're good. And if you're not good, I hope at least you have sweet moments in the days and you can find small little pockets of sweetness because as you said, it's such it's so rough. Everything is so kind of crazy. So I think considering I am I'm well, 
and I'm doing better at sleeping. So I'm, you know, bigging up myself for that is being conscious of the fact that I need to sleep and rest no matter what as a human being. Um, so I'm well because of that. I'm, you know, doing better at that. Uh, I call in from Bristol and I'm not so much close to nature except all the houseplants in my living room right now <laughs> and the uh, flowers outside. And yeah, definitely big up yourself about the sleep. I mean, I think it is, it must be me getting older, but how I value sleep more now than ever before. You know, when you're young, yes. you'd, just, you'd pull these all nighters or you yes. stay up studying, et cetera, et cetera. I know I can't do that now because I pay for it for days afterwards. It's almost like a hangover. I'm mm-hmm. grouchy, I've got no energy and sleep is so vital. And when that is mashed up, it has a mm-hmm. effect on anything. So, um, yes. And, you know, one thing I found is that whereas 10 years ago, I could do that. I could pull an all night and the work would be good. Mm-hmm. Actually, no, there's no point because I'm just not producing anything that, that, you know, if I haven't had enough sleep, it just don't make sense. Stay up and do it anyway. So mm-hmm. I'm, you know, now I'm like working smart and saying, oh, that doesn't work. So maybe you need to start waking up early or maybe you need to take a nap at this time in the day. So, you know, so I think, playing with what works best for you as you said and kind of recognizing even the small things because it's so hard sometimes to know that your life needs to be better and think about these grand changes you have to make but I'm like really taking the time for the small things like okay I rearranged my bookshelf big up it looked nice enjoy it sit down and look at it it's pretty you know all of those it's the small things I think especially now like we have to we have to we have to big up ourselves and 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 kind of other people as well, uh, you know, I think. I, I am totally in agreement with you. Mm-hmm. And that really feeds into my, my word of the year, which is slow, slow and steady and going at my own pace instead of mm-hmm. as it has been going at other people's pace and feeling that I have to produce and produce and produce when really yes. that all that does is deplete me, make me anxious, so I'm so pleased, you know, the sleep, but rearranging that bookcase. It is a simple thing, but it can give you so much joy and pleasure from looking mm-hmm. at it. So I am totally on that path. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that. I really do. Your name came onto my radar when I saw that you had become one of the writers for the Forestry Commission. Yes. And this was, I'm thinking it's 2019, but you can correct me. So let's just talk a a little bit about that. How did that come about to be a writer in residence for the Forestry Commission? And was this the first time that it's happened? Yeah, you're right. It was uh, 2019, 2019, where they had, you know, there was just a call out for writers and I applied and I was just lucky enough, you know, my application hit, I suppose, the right the right spots at the time and I was lucky enough to be named one of the two writers and you know it definitely was the first time and I had no clue what to expect either no clue what what even being a writer in residence meant you know uh, and in fact it was uh, um, advertised as a writer in the forest which is probably what drew, drew me in more than writer in residence I might have thought oh that sounds kind of really official I don't know if I can do that you know but when it said writer in the forest and a woodland writer it seemed a lot more 
I, I don't want to say it was simple to to make the affair seem less than it was, but it was definitely more comfortable, I suppose is the word, and more inviting. So because if you if if you're a writer and you explore forests, then you might think, okay, I can do this. And so that's what drew me into it really. It was thinking that, you know, these are both things I enjoy doing in, you know, sometimes I do them together. So let me try. And it was, it was great. I mean, honestly, I had no, like, I had no clue what to expect. And, you know, as you said, this is now two years later and that's where um, me and you now link up. So I, I could have never really imagined. I think there was a, definitely a naivety on my part and not actually knowing what it would have meant or even understanding the kind of, even understanding the gravity of the forestry, of forestry England itself to understand how far and wide, you know, how many eyes would have been on me. I don't think I really knew. I, don't, I didn't understand that at the time, but, you know, ple- pleasantly surprised, of course, and, and giving thanks because it was just a lucky break. You know, it was really good. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm loving what you're saying, that idea of not knowing what it entailed and that naivety. And, you know, you could say green, being green about mm-hmm. But I am so pleased that, you were that way because um, if you had been more in the know um, and I say, you know, being more in the the know of like knowing how this system works here in say the UK and saw the forestry commission and knew what that entailed, then Mm -hmm. I think that would have been off putting for you that, and, 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 and I'm saying this from my point of view of being born and brought up here and having, you know, yes. this idea of like establishments and organizations that could and are in a certain degree um, mm-hmm. removed from us, um, um, a different a different way of working. I mean, I'm talking about black and people of color, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea of like how these organizations do appear to be closed off to us mm-hmm. so then, and, and even the idea of saying writer in residence instead of and writer of the forest is like yeah mm-hmm. I can see how that would totally relate mm-hmm. rather than that more official and almost putting on a pedestal term of writer mm-hmm. residence mm-hmm. so I'm yes. so pleased that that writer um, in the forest related to you connected to you that you yes. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And I'm I'm so amazed that we are here already because you said something that my sister and I, having been born here but raised in Jamaica, have been talking about recently. Mm-hmm. As people who were like grown up in a black majority country, we have very different feeling towards the establishment and the white es- and white people and white establishments as well in England. Our peers, as you just kind of mentioned don't want to have anything to do with it because they have those long decades of the school system. Me and my sister, we didn't experience it here. So there's a way where one, it's not that we don't care about it, but we don't, like we're not aware of it in the very same way. We don't have the traumatic experiences probably mm-hmm. where we closed off to a lot of them. And I'm not saying that, um, you know, it means we're not pushing for the same things, mm-hmm. but in a way, you know, it has, it has meant that we are or, or like we don't feel any way of going into certain spaces where when you get there you're like oh my gosh I'm the only black person here but we understand why once we get there 
We understand why people don't want to be in these spaces, right? We understand why when we get there, we feel like this is such a cool thing, a, a cool free resource. Why aren't people here? When you get there, you recognize why. You don't want to be there, you know? There's no kind of... and. I suppose that feeds into all of my work in, 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 you know, in why we create our own spaces to, to explore the things that we want to explore because we, we don't want people to be left out, but we also don't want them to be uncomfortable. And another, you know, a quick, another quick caveat here is that, funny enough, I found some of your work, I think, from in, in doing my PhD stuff, I was looking up some papers and I came across some papers from the, I think it was the Caribbean, Society for Caribbean Studies conference papers mm-hmm. and I was like wait I'm gonna meet Sherry soon we're gonna you know and it was your paper about uh, black British women writers maintaining two different faces mm-hmm. and I mean all of that just feeds into you know this idea of double consciousness of like you get into the space and you realize like oh my gosh I'm not me who I think I am on the inside I am me how I am being perceived here mm-hmm. you totally understand why people do not want to engage right I mean, Forestry England is a government body when it comes out, it's government funded body, mm-hmm. right? We, we totally understand why people do not want to engage with it. And, and so, I mean, I'm probably getting ahead of myself for what you want to ask me here. No, but, it's, you know, <laughs> it all goes in the mix. I'm glad, I'm glad you're open and honest. And we are discussing it because this is where yeah. we're in this space, this podcast mm. space, because this is, it's our own space where we're feeling welcome, where we feel safe, that we can explore these issues watch, and discuss these things that we're not able to right. discuss right. within other contexts, other spaces. And okay, yeah, we've taught the, the idea of like things have started to maybe open up a little bit since June and Black Lives Matter um, that we can now talk openly about racism mm-hmm. and race and it's not a dirty word but is that oh that's only to a certain degree mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you could say looking looking at where we are now April um not even a year has and gone a full year mm-hmm. and I feel like just gone back to and I don't mm-hmm. want to say normal but as it used to be you know mm-hmm. it's like now it's a case of like Black Lives Matter, the terrorists, you know. Yes. <laughs> it's like we're trying to change history and change mm-hmm. the narrative and stop messing with it. I mean, like, I mean, I'm jumping ahead here because um, let's let's talk about mm-hmm. the work that you did for the Forestry Commission was mm-hmm. about around certain plants, say, and how your work has developed now. And you're actually looking at the colonial history of mm-hmm. plants and how this actually feeds into our reluctance and fear mm-hmm. of being yes. in this environment. And I really want to discuss that because I think that's such a rich area. So can you, can you um, yeah. talk about how your work is developing, your writing yeah. work? please yes I mean when I was with Forestry England you know that wasn't like I had no like I said I was kind of a very blank slate I had no mandate no clue and they also gave me that freedom as well so I think you know you know what I produced in the end was nothing to what I said I was going to produce as well because being in the space was you know I suppose this is the artistic part it was just totally different from what I expected also as a person who had not 
engage with English forests, the woodlands, right? In Jamaica, we don't talk about the woods. We might say the forest, but we're not talking about woods and forests in the way that we think about like Robin Hood or, you know, Alice in Wonderland is the kind of idea I would have in my head when we think about these things. So what I came up with was nothing like that because the experiences were very different. I would have been in places and saw, you know, beautiful landscapes, wonderful things, but the places that excited me the most or, or you know, or I had special interest in were the Arboreta, yeah, the Arboretum, which were, you know, when it come down to tree museums and it's, just, you know, just the same problems that we have talking about what the museums in England hold at the moment is the same things for the trees. Mm-hmm. So I am there looking at wonderful monkey puzzle trees and knowing that this tree come from South Africa and why is it growing in the middle of Kent? <laughs> right there's a history there's a history behind it and there's a, there's a, a time when there was this botanical hunt um across the quote-unquote new world from 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 europe right england led the way in that a lot and so a lot of what is held by uh forestry england by anybody who kind of has these uh, uh you know kew gardens anywhere where they hold hold a lot of species from around the world there's a history connected to how they got there and that history is a history of exploitation and extraction probably nine times out of ten probably ten times out of ten if we're talking about a certain period of time if we're talking about the 1600s 1700s you know into the 1800s some people would say even into the last century into the 1900s as well right it would just change you know it's a different form of extraction but um so so for me you know these are things I couldn't um ignore and I will always say like big up the people who were hosting me in the forest as well because when I kind of asked these questions they could tell me straight up like the you know they would tell like these these Chinese tea plants have been here since hundreds of years because of this reason or you know our area here where we're extremely focused on climate change is because we know that we extracted all these trees and we have them here. What are we going to do with them? This is a scientist, you know, the, 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 the tree people. And they're, they're really like uh, very skilled in the, you know, some of the best people in the world. So it's good to hear that they are considering these questions. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in, and so from my perspective as well, I, I consider it through my writing from, from the perspective of one, a person who has had, you know, ended up in the Caribbean because of this, this, system that is included in the extraction right there was there was there was enslavement of people that was also included in the same system that extracted the trees from the caribbean or from india wherever africa back to europe right so from that perspective from the perspective of somebody who grew up in jamaica knowing a lot of these plants and not knowing why i know them in jamaica right so so the lignum vitae that, that flower is the national flower of Jamaica and had no clue until last year I was doing, a, you know, reading up some things to find out that it's, the, you know, it was one of the most, um, the wood that was most sought after in the world at one point because it was the hardiest wood. So when it came to shipbuilding, it was the perfect thing to have. So every nation who was on the seas was after this wood. The wood come from the Caribbean and Latin America, Right. Right, this wood, the, the, these ships were slave, slave, slaver ships were built from this wood, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And it's on endangered list now, or you know, um, you know, uh, it's it's we don't have that much rights mm-hmm. again, exploited to near, near extinction, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. And we and and what's what's missing is the stories, is the is the histories where we we're not making the linkages of these things and recognizing. And I mean, I, this is my criticism of Jamaica as well, because I learned about this plant in Jamaica as a child going to school, learning about the national symbols of my country. But I never learn about this part of the story. Not at all. Mm-hmm. You know, I just learn about the pretty part. It's this nice tree with this pretty fl- uh, blue and purplish flower and this orange fruit mm-hmm. and these glossy green leaves. I never learned not a thing about why it would even be the national plant, a national plant. It's also the national tree of the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. And right? it's, so, as you said, it's such a pretty plant as well. And mm-hmm. you're just learning about the pretty history. And that is so true. And even if we think, if we think about the, the recent hoo-ha and uprising, well, you know, by via letters and and removing membership of the National Trust, publishing mm-hmm. their colonial history connections. And if we think about the colonial countryside project, yep. with, um, Dr. Fowler, and yes. and how that has been played out in certain media outputs, you know, if we're thinking about the Daily Mail and the Telegraph and mm-hmm. how, how they're actually attacking the individuals that are involved mm-hmm. in the project and trying to rake up dirt about them mm-hmm. and um, challenge their credentials of all they're doing is unveiling, um, unearthing hidden histories that has Mm -hmm. been there within the landscape, within the colonial houses and gardens that has been, as as we've just said, prettied over or concealed Mm -hmm. or um, neglected or forgotten. So it can be packaged to people in an agreeable way. And there's Mm -hmm. so much shame and lies that are surrounding these plants that are here or how this money has come about to supply these houses to to build up these gardens and I think we're doing a service to everyone when we do tap into these and bring them to light and share them but Mm -hmm. share them because they are stories and it's that those stories that connect us and we're hot wired as human beings to hear stories to take on board stories but it really, it really infuriates me that it's a case of like only certain stories are given value or only yes. certain stories should be given prominence. Um, and I do, I do think this just feeds into that, that system, as you're saying, which is racism, imperialism, colonialism, mm-hmm. and how it's always been set up just to benefit a few with vested interests. Um, so you've talked about Jamaica. Well, let's 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 just take a step back. You were born <laughs> in the UK, but then you went over to Jamaica, yeah. And I'm interested in that that comparison between the Jamaican landscape and the British landscape. And you've touched on it by saying, like, the forest here. You don't have the forest in Jamaica, but you do have the bush. Do you know? Mm-hmm. So can yeah. you that contrast, please? I think it's so rich. Yeah, you know, there's a risk in saying we don't have the forest because we absolutely do. You know, we have many types of forest landscape too. 
but I suppose the enduring image of the forest is the woodland forest of of, of England for, for me growing up there, you know, but our landscape are, for, you know, the, the mangroves, the, the tropical rainforest, all of those are actually forms of forest ecologies as well, you know. Um, so, but we don't even call it that, you know, so I'm going to the forest. No, you're right. We say bush, you're going into the bush or, you know, going country. So I think there's a difference in it because it's less of a, there is not the forest and the woods. That's a bit, that's much more separate to us, right? Maybe because the, the island is also smaller. So everyone is likely to have some experience with country, you know, country being the rural areas where you are likely to have forested areas, the bush. Even if you're not traveling there yourself, you know, you are interacting with it maybe because of the food that come to your plate, you know, coming from a farm, coming from a market somewhere. And, you know, I might be one of the lucky ones because my family still live in country and still farm in country. So um, I spent, you know, moving back to moving back to Jamaica. I was a baby when my family moved back, when, well, my mother moved back because my mother is uh, the Jamaican parent. And, uh, you know, at the time, uh, having young children and stuff, they... We, we were in country a lot. We went to my grandmother a lot because, you know, you just moved to a new country. My mother had been out of Jamaica nearly all of her life. You know, she left when she was like eight or something, six, I think. So she had been out. She had been in England for most of her life and moving back with a young family. We spent a lot of time with her mother in country, in, in you know, the rural area. And so I suppose that is how I got this experience from a long, long, long time. And, and again, this wasn't that common for all of my friends would, would be being able to go and have family that were still in rural areas because I lived in town, I lived in a city, you know, a, a, a very city family. Um, but, you know, those are the experiences that probably shape my interest in the British forest because I understand what the, the landscape of, of, you know, the natural landscape meant for me and seeing the similarity in that, okay, it's a natural landscape, it probably has those properties or it can give me that same value or maybe it offers that value for someone else. I would like to know why, why it resonates with me, why it doesn't resonate with me, why it resonates with someone else, why it doesn't, you know. Um, and in, in, that, that can be difficult coming from, again, tropical uh, places coming from a place where the forests are are palm trees, you know, <laughs> coming from a place where it's riverside and beach and stuff. Coming to England where you know it, it's cliche is gray and dull and rainy. Mm -hmm. It's not you know it's not necessarily the same experience. But I was open to finding out what it was, you know, and then making a decision. Oh, I like it or I don't like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. And I think you hit on that point really, um, really well. That illustrates the idea of like in Jamaica, there isn't that separation between the person and the land, mm -hmm. you know, while that is so much the case here in the UK. And, you know, we could say that this past year, there's been more of a, an appreciation of nature on the doorstep the land on mm -hmm. our doorstep and how people are engaging with it more and and I think we can say that because there's been that long period of disconnection yes. from 
nature, the environment for the majority of people. And, and that idea of going to the forest or going to the beach, it is mm-hmm. almost, it's removed and it's not part of our everyday. And because of that, there where as, as a species, we are missing out on a whole heap of deep connections with nature, but more so with ourselves. Yeah, and that mm-hmm. that connection of, of 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 realizing that we are one. Yep. Um, so thinking about and is it black and green in Bristol or is it black and green in Bristol? And yeah. your your work that because Bristol's an urban area, but what work are you doing, especially with the younger population, an urban young population of getting them back into? nature or getting them Mm. to connect with the land yeah yeah i must say um you know covid stopped a lot of the activities we would have uh started doing that were you know a lot more of us getting outdoors with younger people but the black and green project in bristol has been you know absolutely great for that it's it's one of these projects that came out through ujima radio where i was a volunteer at still still volunteer there and the project, um, it was a response to the 2015 Bristol being the green capital of, of the EU. Bristol was the green capital of Europe in 2015. And the radio station, you know, we kind of recognized that exactly what I said is that we wanted to be, you know, involved and included, but there weren't so many things even happening in our communities. So people had to travel to the city center and, you know, um, we had uh, something at the time called a big black and green debate, which progressed into the black and green project. Mm -hmm. And through that project, you know, we did things like having workshops, um, talking to community members about their interests, their kind of background, their history. And with young people and families also, we did these trips, which were, I mean, great successes where we went to uh, farms a couple of times, uh, city farm as well. Um, uh, woodlands, wetlands. We went to, um, yes, yeah, Slimbridge, which is a bird sanctuary very close to us. And we also did things within the city. So, as you said, Bristol is is an urban area. It's you know city cityscape, and we were very kind of adamant that we weren't only again doing this thing where you have to go outside to go and experience nature. You have to go out into the countryside and I mean one that's not even practical for a lot of us living in the cities because we don't drive mm-hmm. right yeah. and we can talk about the elements of discrimination and racism you don't want to go out into some faraway place where you don't know anyone or you don't you know you're the only one that looks like you or speaks your language right so we were very kind of um adamant that we, we were going to explore the city too so we went to city farms, you know, we went to a growing farm in the city as well as a, the, the animal farm at St. Werberg's where we had our workshops as well. So we tried to put our, even just our talking events in places that were these natural settings, mm-hmm. um, you know, taking, um, I think we went out with, um, we went to the bird sanctuary twice I think those are our first two trips where we got we we partnered with youth groups so the Bristol Youth Forum came with us 
Um, and, and there have been other groups that we partner with, um, Upper Street, Eastside Community Trust, who works in um, Eastern and Lawrence Hill in, in, in Bristol, which is an area that is up and coming, but yeah. also has things like, um, you know, the worst air pollution in the city, um, has things like as the, the big great you know it's such a place of contrast a great psychopath running through it but then life expectancy is also really low and then it doesn't it's not it isn't surprising to hear that it's the area with the highest concentration of of Somali people in Bristol yes. so we try to yeah so we try to we'll try to partner with groups that were that are already doing work um, with in areas that we you know we want to work with and whether or not those are environmental activities that they were involved in, we said, hey, look, we have this thing. It's, it's a trip, you know, so our hook is always like, it's just, a, it's, it's a nice day out, you know, yes, and then jolly. we say jolly up here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? It's just a jolly. Yeah. Right? It's just a lime. It's just a nice time out. Yes. And then, um, right. It's a lime. <laughs> and I once you get there, inevitably people then do the whole interacting with nature because that's where we are it's the setting right and and we do that in the city as well we walk we walk our i shouldn't say the psychopath it's really the bristol bath old railway path because again um pedestrians have just as much right to use it as people on bicycles Mm -hmm. um but you know with with our with some our young girls group doing the path they're going into the park playing identifying little plants that we learn on our trips outside of the city bringing some of that knowledge back in and you know they've recognized that they're making that connection so it's like oh yeah i just that's that's wild garlic i know that we we learned that when we went to folly farm the other day you know so uh and trying to yeah go ahead this sounds so so familiar what we're doing up here and what you said at the beginning is like because of covid we haven't been able to do this and mm-hmm. you know we started this conversation saying we're coming out of our third lockdown and yeah. I, I, I'm, you know, I project coordinate these outings and hook up with the groups and get the bus and mm-hmm. coordinate with the partners where we go into, et cetera, et cetera. And I, and I admit, I'm admitting it, yeah, that I'm really reluctant and apprehensive and fearful to be starting this process again because mm-hmm. of, you know, covid and but because of like being out of practice of doing this because mm-hmm. to do it we do have to build ourselves up to go out of our comfort zone in a sense and step into these spaces which are unfamiliar and might not be as welcoming or we haven't seen ourselves there and yes. And I know the benefit of it. I so need the benefit. I know the benefit of it. That's why it was set up in the first place. It's like, oh my gosh, we have a, we have a right to be doing this and we're not doing it. We must be doing it. We must be making these spaces so we can do it. But mm-hmm. I'm saying this and at the same time, it's like, oh, okay, how can we do it? You know, and so we're safe, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, I'm putting it to you. you you're saying that things, um, activities, have been put on hold how are you mm-hmm. coming out then to be doing more events or doing these trips out again have mm-hmm. you started making plans um and i'm asking this for a personal personal, mm-hmm. yes, <laughs> personal level here because maybe you could give me some because yeah. i can't fearful. um 
yeah. you you're right you know like i said it's this this apprehension to kind of get involved sometimes because you don't want to stand out and i think so the black and green project itself there are three new ambassadors uh the last ambassador and i jasmine ketibua foley and i we're now kind of like alumni of the projects and the new ambassadors have mainly had to run their project all online mm -hmm. and it has so it has less engaged younger people so far I think now they have six more months to go, more than six months now until the end of the year. Um, they'll be able to, you know, probably get some outdoor stuff going. Um, but but me, I'm, uh, you know, outside of the Black and Green Project, just because I'm not uh, an active ambassador anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I still hope to continue um, the trips um, with the groups that I kind of have worked with because I'm still in contact with, with some of them. And, you know, we, we built a relationship um that I would love to continue and I think the way for me that that we recognize kind of quickly and again it's you know you wonder if it's sustainable to do it this way but we are we, we are only going to spaces where we have a partner where that people are expecting us and 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 we know who they are and we've worked with them and quite often they've come to us before mm -hmm. you know I mean this is one thing that we learned actually from the Somali community uh Jasmine and I when we were when we were the, the black and green ambassadors is that, you know, neither of us are Somalian. We want to engage you. They told us straight up, like, you can't just come in and do research because one, everybody in, in England wants to come and do research. Like, you know, mm -hmm. the, there has to be a, a, um, a relationship that is established. Mm -hmm. And quite often it means you being the one to go into their space and, and be uncomfortable, mm -hmm. be the one that doesn't speak the language and somebody have to translate for you. And, and you be the one that don't know how to eat the food don't don't know what utensils or how to you know be the one that is that is being ex, it is being explained to mm -hmm. and so we took that back into our project work and I think we we when we partner with people now we we try to and I mean it's you know you can say we turn on opportunities but if you're unwilling to do that then we probably don't we don't, we, we don't know what to expect when we come into your space so we prefer not to Right, we, we we can't vouch for you in a way, or we can't vouch for that you will support us, and 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 so all of our trips in you know the last you know twenty nineteen trips, I think I'm trying no, we didn't do any in twenty twenty, but all of our twenty nineteen trips for sure were partnered groups, and and some of these groups even gave us the funding to have these experiences while while they may not have come on the trips with us, yeah. right? But there was some kind of express um support from us so so we got we got funding from bristol museums while they had their exhibition about nature mm -hmm. and we were able to use our funding to go out to one of our other partners right so we kind of had these relationships that we work with and and avon wildlife trust has been a partner for us in that way and we, we've been able to go to different one of their locations so that when we arrive they know we're coming mm -hmm. they have facilities for us the kettle is on you know, they know that we're going to have four-year-olds. So they have something planned for the four-year-olds as well as the, the mothers and the fathers who are there with us. Um, and, and like I said, you know, it can, it, can ease, it can help you weed out who you will work with. And it is getting that balance because, you know, I'm thinking along the lines of going to places that we know it's going to be, we're just going to be there. It's an exclusive place, an exclusive mm -hmm. garden. So we're just there. But, and so that aids some of their issues around fear and yep. 
safety. But at the same time, we also want to be seen by others out there. Mm -hmm. So we can be changing the narrative about mm -hmm. who has a right to be out there. Because that's been part of my, my mentality recently is like, okay, I'm supposed to be right here in residence at Northumberland National Park. And, mm -hmm. and that's, you know, it's further than five miles away from my house. So I couldn't go, but it is, a, it is work. It is a job. So I could have gone in the mm -hmm. sense, but because the, the county is being inundated by people um, and the locals have been on vigil, you know, being extra vigilant, yeah. at least have been there. I haven't been wanting to mm -hmm. been doing it inviting the gays and then also inviting what goes with that was this is a stranger maybe yeah. she shouldn't be here and getting the police called on my ass and that's sort all of <laughs> you're right yeah. I mean that's why I said we have to wonder if it's sustainable to always be hosted and always have a hosted trip where we get everyone together and it be this special event because then where's the spontaneity and the individuals that are able to do that on their own so is that a serious question yeah. right yeah yeah thank you for that i much appreciate that so um i'm looking at time but we you mentioned phd there thank you so much because like you know i had goosebumps there that it's because it's not i don't get to be recognized that way very often you know it's mm. on my bank card you know oh <laughs> yeah. um so but let's talk about your phd um <laughs> finding out about you that you were you were a journalist a journalist in Jamaica and New York and this is actually part of your PhD as well yes. so let's let's talk what is your PhD what you're focusing on and is it at Bristol mm -hmm. first of all big up big up to you. you I recognize you when I saw your name I was like hey I know her celeb here so big up to you Dr. Mac yeah but um and I, hopefully I joined you as soon as another Dr. Yes. Mac Kenzie. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah so but mine is it's about um uh journalists from the Caribbean in post World War II England so mm. this time that we call of the Windrush era the Windrush yeah. generation um looking at that, the work that that was done then because we know a lot about the 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 kind of fiction writers, you know, about the nonfiction writers to the, the prose, the poetry, the essays. Mm -hmm. We don't necessarily look at journalism as a literary art in the same way or creative writing. So there's a way how it gets left out of literature, not only Caribbean literature. And I think this could be seen for, you know, all types of letters, studies of writing. Mm -hmm. So, and again, yeah, because of my little background as a journalist myself, it interested me to see what was happening here, first of all, to con in contemporary times, to know how dismal the numbers of uh, black writers, black journalists, and not just black journalists too, but I just mean, you know, woman journalists, just, you know, the numbers were just really shocking when I saw, I think it was an, probably an NUJ study that I saw their, their statistics. And so I was interested in looking at, okay, the history of, of, of the journalists then, the, the black journalists here, because I'm like, something don't look right. And for sure, it's just not, again, it's this issue of what, it, what the gaps are in our recorded history, right? Is what we record and what we remember, because it happened, right? These things happen, but it's what we 
tell as our story, our collective story, I suppose. And I found this all this wealth of info about um, really, really great alternative journalism that was happening in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. Um, quite often, again, because they were kept out of Fleet Street because they couldn't be, you know, journalists on the national papers. So writers, black writers, Asian writers, they were creating their own papers and there are loads of them. Mm. And so I am just looking at the first three or three of the biggest ones post-war, mm-hmm. post-World War II. So one from, um, you know, so the Caribbean News, which a lot of people would know Claudia Jones, she was there. And then once Caribbean News folded, she started the West Indian Gazette. Mm-hmm. And then after the West Indian Gazette folded, a lot of their writers went and um, became a part of the West Indian world. So those three newspapers are what I'm uh, researching and writing about, trying to add, trying to add this little puzzle, this piece of the puzzle back into the, into the picture of our history. Yeah, and I just love that. And that's what we have to do, you know, if we say about my PhD was about Black women writers, but mm-hmm. poets here, how much writing feeds into our sense of self and but you need to know where you actually fit in the tradition you need to know that there is a tradition that you know because that makes you that makes you feel that you you belong or that you're not alone and you're not you're not an oddity or a freak that Mm -hmm. there was people that came before you and whose shoulders that you're standing on and who you can learn from so thank you for filling in that much needed um gap that needed filling in so thank you for doing that my honor really (laughs) reminding myself of doing the phd and it's over 10 years now um Mm. i just managed to get my um the piece of paper (laughs) for my second child dropped out 11 oh my gosh (gasps) oh my gosh what date is it I'm sure this is the date this week that I did get it so she's gonna be 11 um, oh my gosh so this is so weird yes but I know that that PhD consumed my life and I also know that I hit upon racism and with, with, with doing it. But I'm not going to go down that road because I could get very bitter. <laughs> but where yeah. I'm going to is like, it does consume your life. Are you able to also do your creative writing at the same time as doing this PhD? I'm, not, I'm assuming it's not a creative PhD, but correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but are you still able to do other writing? Because I know it took different parts of my brain to do mm-hmm. the the uh, and the analysis, the theory, and then to swip mm-hmm. into doing the creative stuff. So mm-hmm. are you actually able to? <laughs> well, that's what I tell my supervisor. I said, oh, watch all the other work you see out there in the world that I've done. That's the creative part of my brain. That's not the critical part. <laughs> Because it is, it's not a creative piece, it's a critical, it's critical mm-hmm. writing. And I mean, you know, no lie, that's a challenge for me because uh, my supervisor tells me every minute, like my writing is still flowery. It's either too flowery coming from the creative side or it's too journalistic because of where my writing has come from all along mm-hmm. to get to PhD level. So trust me, I still don't have the writing for the PhD down. And um 
And so in a way, funny enough, the frustration with the writing for the PhD is actually how in 2019 I applied for the writer's residency with Forestry England because I was ready to quit the PhD. I was so frustrated saying, look, I'm not, a, this writing is no good. How, how did I ever think I could write anything much less a PhD and no good? I kind of applied to that because I needed, I needed something to remind me that I could write, you know? So when I sent in the application, I was like, okay, good. I, rem- I, I wrote something I can write. Mm-hmm. Um, getting it now, that was the icing on the cake because I, I, and you know, like I say, I just, it, it really validated the fact that maybe I can finish the PhD. But it is definitely a struggle and I've taken time off. I've taken extensions. I completely interrupted last year, right before COVID. Look how, look how unlucky I am. <laughs> so I stopped my studies right before they would have been stopped because of COVID anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm back on it and I'm kind of confident that I can finish it because, again, it's gotten so much more interesting to me in making connections between a lot of what the journalists were writing about then and then what's happened over the last year mm-hmm. from you know from Bristol and Colston you know I suppose starting with Black Lives Matter in America Ahmaud Arbery and a lot of things have happened that when when and I had the time last year to do a lot of reading yeah. because I was at home and you know um, the libraries were closed so we were getting the books um, at home and so a lot of the things that um uh, journalists were writing about in the 50s and the 60s. I see where, because they've been ignored, the, the problems perpetuate. Yes. And so it's a, liter- it's a literature PhD, but it's so weird because it, I definitely have to remind myself that it's I'm writing about the writing and the networks, and it's not like a social science or, uh, or international relations PhD. Mm-hmm. But um, I suppose it's what happens when the thing is personal to you and, and you can see your own life and your history and I've seen things and I'm wondering, like, right, is this why my parents actually left England? You know, put, is this why they decided they were done and they were going back to Jamaica? You know, so I think it becomes very, per- it became very personal. And so it comes a lot easier for me now, but I still, like every meeting, it's like, where is the criticism? Where is the, you know, where's the evidence? Where's the writers you're in conversation with? Are your supervisors white or black? They are white. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. One in African literature and one in Caribbean literature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, we're coming close to the end here, but all I want to say from someone who's been through it is like keep keep a hold of yourself as well because you're saying it's really artificial to divorce yourself from it it really is if we talk about what we what we've been this whole thing has been about about nature and how it's all connected and how we're all connected and to actually you know to get the PhD in that system they do ask you to turn off these vital parts of you, but these mm-hmm. vital parts of you are needed to actually produce the PhD. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? And yeah. Keep your voice, please keep your voice because your voice is, is vital. It is vital. Here to support you in any way. Thank you. Thanks. And I, I, I must say, you know, my, my supervisors have said the same thing because I think in the beginning, I really was kind of writing like journalistically and kind of very removed from myself. But 
once I stopped doing that, then it, the story really came together and I find I can write many more words. I don't know if that's egocentric, but I can write many more words if I think about it as a part of my own <laughs> history, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's really important that we do retain. Yeah, so here to help you. Before we go, is there anything that you're, that you're doing that you want listeners to, to find out about or offerings or workshops? Oh my goodness got something coming out a little pamphlet or a little publication yes and I always like forget to plug all my things so thank you for saying that <laughs> yes yeah I totally have a, a a pamphlet coming out uh it's it's gonna start shipping April 22nd so it's it's available you can pre-order it and it's with rough trade books and you can buy it from rough trade books it's called testimonies on the history of Jamaica volume one and it is it's about, um, again, environment and co- colonialism and uh, this extraction of plants that happened from Jamaica. And the time period I'm looking at, it's something very new for me because I'm writing from characters, uh, three characters in the 1600s and the 1700s. And they're, you know, so there was a book that came out called His- The History of Jamaica by someone called Edward Lang, and it became. Yeah the long-standing book that was, you know, the first and, and the, the greatest so-called uh, te- uh, book about Jamaica that England had. And so I read this book and I, it's just a bunch of, it's a, it's a load of rubbish. It's a load of I justification. Know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just a justification for keeping black people subjugated. And so my, my this book is in, in this pamphlet, it's just a pamphlet, is in response to that. Yeah. as testimonies from people who actually live through that yeah. so they're just yeah so it's you know and um and you know rough trade allow me to write that and it's been like i said it's kind of this this form or genre i haven't written in this kind of fictional or historical fiction because like i said a lot of the things here are based on the facts i just made up the three people who are responding to it and so that's out uh, soon, soon. And I have a few more things in anthologies, but everything can be found on my website, which is just zakiamackenzie.com. Yeah. And I'll also put this up too. So yeah, big up, big up Earth, Sea, Love. So I'm going to get myself um, <laughs> my hands on a copy of that. So then when I'm doing the introduction for this podcast episode, <laughs> I'm going to be raving about the publication. All right, because I do... Oh, okay. I do love your writing um, and, oh, you. and it's such a welcome and needed voice within the British literary scene. So I thank you for being here in the UK writing and I also thank you for being part of the Earthsea Love podcast. Thank you so much. Thank um, you so much for having me. Um,